We continue to look at the wisdom of God and have wanted to bring that together in three voices, the Old Testament Proverbs that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself God's wisdom. We'll hear the wisdom of God through the voice of Jesus. And then through the, and I'm always fascinated by this, the younger stepbrother of Jesus. They may well have shared a bedroom growing up, and that's James. So hear the word of God. I'll begin in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. In your pew Bible, it's page 518 if you want to follow along. It reads this, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And from the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And from the book of James, chapter 4. Now, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Oh, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace instead. That is why the scripture says that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You see, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God and Father, uh, we thank you for the marvelous way you have moved upon the writers of the scripture and that to your glory and our benefit as you've inspired these texts and then preserved them across centuries, we can now look to them, translate them, 
and meet your Holy Spirit who will speak to our minds and hearts. In this day, Father, move upon us that we might see and hear and obey. Thank you for your great love, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. This passage this morning breaks itself up in a fairly simple, straightforward way into three things. In these first three verses, desires that battle within you, and then around this kind of provocative statement, you adulterers, and then finally, grieve, mourn, and wail. These three things stand out like three steps, it seemed to me. There's a problem, conflict. There's a cause, the state of your heart. And then James gives us a solution, repentance. So let's begin with these desires that battle within you. And it's a moment of true confessions. I want to go back and tell you about a time I almost killed somebody. Fortunately, I'm old enough now that if I tried to do the same thing, I would only injure them, so you're safer. It was a really difficult time in the course of my life. And those of you who know about my story, there was a time that I left a medium-sized, thriving church in Michigan, Mount Pleasant, and moved to the mountains of Western North Carolina to a church that when I interviewed, there was 150. When I got there, there was 18. Hardly what you call a strong career move. So I arrived, and for the first year, we prayed, worked, sweat, the church grew, and so the regional body closed it without any input from me. And in my early 40s, I faced unemployment, which I'd been able to avoid since about the age of 12. We quickly prayed and considered some things. We decided to stay where we were rather than move our kids again. So I stepped out of ministry as a career track. And in the course of that moment, we felt like stability was important. So I began to gather. When you can't get one good job, the German in me gathered five or six really bad jobs and would work on them. And in that way, try to establish some stability, let the kids continue. We had one in college and one in high school and one in middle school. We'd settled in. So I'm working long hours in really difficult situations. One night, um, I left one job that finished about midnight to pick up at another place. I managed a self-serve car wash. You know those things, it was six little brick bays, and you'd go in there with that brush and put some quarters in there and then spray it off. And I could go in there and collect the quarters and fix things and empty out the vacuum cleaners. Oh, that is a story. Um, I could do that at almost any time. So I finished up a shift at midnight, stopped by this place, and there was a broken brush. So I spent time struggling with that thing to get it to work. And I'm just about done, and I knew trouble pulled in the parking lot. It's 2 a.m., but I could hear the noise of this pickup truck, and I saw this guy come in. It was one of those trucks, you know, with the big tires. Got to get on a stepladder to get in the and it was covered with mud. And I knew what that would mean, so I tried to get out of there. But he pulled into the bay beside me where I was just trying to wind up fixing that brush. 
and he started to spray it off. And I knew what would happen. All that mud would get down in the drain and back up, and he'd get his lovely cowboy boots messed up, and I'd have to deal with it. And sure enough, I heard him throw the sprayer down and come marching over, and he screamed at me. He said, boy, get over here. I think he said, get over here, because I stopped hearing it, boy. And I want to tell you, at 2 a.m., I wanted to take that pipe wrench, and I wanted to hit him in such a way that he would be collecting his teeth from the next county. And the reason I remember it so clearly in my mind is because of this inner conversation going on. Boy, what do you mean, boy? Show some respect. I am the world's leading Andrew Murray scholar. Now, just to set the record clear, um, a few years before, I had finished a doctoral program and I had focused my dissertation on Andrew Murray, the 19th century South African pastor and devotional writer. I had published a book and some papers and stuff like that. And so I can guarantee you, if you were at that time to take all the Andrew Murray scholars in the world, put us in one room, that I would have been the top dog. And I would have also been the only one in the room. It was such a bizarre idea that I deserved respect because I was the world's leading Andrew Murray scholar that it stopped me in my tracks. And I said, I want to club this guy because he's offended my little internal sensibility of value based on reading a bunch of books. What is going on? I was tired. I was discouraged. But how could getting that fairly useless, let's be honest, little achievement bring me to the point of maybe I couldn't kill him with one swing, but I'd hurt him. How did I get from there to there? Well, that's exactly the issue that James is shining light on this day. He wants us to realize that when there's fights among you, it comes from desires that are battling within you. And so he wants to set up, he's been doing this all through the letter, but here we see it so clearly, that when there's conflict on the outside, you need to look inside to get a sense of what's driving and motivating that. That was an example of living out at two in the morning in Asheville, North Carolina, an inner battle that suddenly was stripped and ready to lead to outer conflict. Friends, here's the way this moves. Fights among you. And notice that in this letter, James is talking to church people. So it's not just conflict in the world, it's conflict in the family, it's conflict in the church. Those fights among you speak to desires within you, and yes, even within believers. How is it that a believer was ready to club somebody? Well, it's the same sort of processes that lead to conflicts in a church. You see the conflict, but James is saying, look at the desires that battle within you. 
You see, for me in that car wash at that moment, I knew full well that I was a deeply loved child of God. But along with that, I also wanted to be a recognized smart guy. And what happened when that, I'll make no other comments about that guy, but when that guy came in, he offended my little heart's desire to be recognized as that smart guy, and I responded. There was conflict, almost, but it grew out of something inside me being touched. I want to tell you, we need to see, James calls us to do this, and I've tried to share this example from my life so that you can see, we need to see external conflict or tension as a heart gauge. What's going on inside? Well, carefully begin, perhaps, by looking at what's going on on the outside, and then navigate the pathways in your own heart. Desires that battle within you, James writes, lead to the conflicts among you. Listen to verse 2. You desire, that's an inner thing, but you do not have, so you kill. You want to be the smartest guy in the car wash, and when he doesn't recognize it, I want to poke him. You covet, that's an inner thing, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When our lives get divided like that, our prayer life begins to shrivel and dry up. I'm ready to go after this guy with a pipe wrench, but I'm not ready to stop and to seek God in prayer. I don't have that, that affirmation of heart because I'm not seeking God. I'm taking my pipe wrench to go get it myself. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I want to give you a question with three kind of steps that give you a, a sense of how to live out this particular perspective. And it shows in the rest of James as well. But here's the three steps. What is it in my heart? You see, I find myself in a moment of tension or conflict. I'm sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table and just feeling my blood pressure pick up from that nephew. What is it in my heart that uses this trigger circumstance? Yes, there's a circumstance. Yes, that guy treated me disrespectfully. Okay. But that trigger circumstance touches something in my heart that leads and sets off this response. How does that work? Friends, that's the key thing you need to ask. What is it in my heart that uses this trigger circumstance to set off that response? Because the gospel teaches me that I may not be able to change my circumstances. You know, I had to keep cleaning that car wash for the next couple of months. I couldn't change my circumstances but as the gospel changed my heart, I could begin to live free with a different set of responses. That early morning meltdown in a self-serve car wash was the start of an important lesson because a few months later, I was working with a trusted gospel mentor. It, 
I want you to see this, friends. I had led three churches through significant growth. I had two advanced degrees in theology and church history and ministry. I had a lot of concepts, but I couldn't navigate the pathways of my own heart. I couldn't begin to unwind and unpack the motivations that led to my behaviors. And so here I was working with this mentor. You see, there was some conflict and tension in our family, and I imagine, if you will, a family with three teens experiencing conflict and tension. Been there, haven't you? I was beginning to realize that my contribution to this conflict told me more about what was in my heart than the problem with my kids. I hadn't picked that up in seminary or in college, and I'd avoided it as a child, I began to see. You see, deep down in my heart, I had to be right, and I had to be acknowledged as right and honored as right no matter what. And when that was in my heart, no wonder there would be tension in the process of relating with teenagers. Now, my kids still needed a dad and for me to serve them and lead them as a dad. Together with my wife, Mary Lynn, God had called us to set boundaries and expectations that were appropriate and prepared them for life. And yes, the way you do that for an 18-year-old is different than the way you do that for a two-year-old. All of that still stands. But as well as setting those boundaries, I needed to engage their heart and their motivations. I needed to help them see the things in their inner life that were causing their external behaviors. Why is it that you want to ignore curfew and hang out with these people that you didn't tell me about? What's going on that leads to that behavior? You see, I couldn't do that A, because I couldn't navigate the pathways of my heart, and B, because I was... My kids used to say that I would yell by getting quieter and quieter. I never yelled at my kids, but they knew when I was steamed. And where was that coming from? Their need... God's opportunity in their life that he wanted me as a dad to cultivate and deal with and let them see the hope of the gospel? No, that tension was coming from my insecurity that says I've got to be right. James shines a light on the problem. Here it's conflict in the church and among believers, but he also points out that the root of the problem is internal. It's desires that battle within you. It's desires at battle with who we are. Now he makes a statement that might catch us by surprise, but one that helps us understand the dynamics of this internal battle. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Wait a minute, what brought that on? Adulterous? They're just arguing. You Christians are always thinking about sex. Friends, I want to tell you, Typically, I understand we, assault, we associate adultery with sexual behavior that God rules off limits. And now, that is a true statement, but it's not a complete statement. Adultery is sexual behavior that violates God's law. And that's because multiple sexual partners is destructive of what we were created for. 
promiscuity erodes and damages the image of God in all of God's image bearers who practice promiscuity. Now, if you were to tell me, Pastor Bill, I want to drive my car across Lake Michigan to Milwaukee, I would warn you that that would be destructive of your car. It's not built for that. And so when somebody comes to me and says, oh, we'd like you to perform our wedding. Well, actually, what they first say is, could you marry us? And I'd say, no, I'm already married to my wife. They never seem to get the joke. But sure, I'd be happy to explore how to do your wedding as we think about marriage. Are you living together? Well, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. God's intention for marriage is that it not be spoiled or broken by promiscuity. Let's deal with that. Oh, no. I want to tell you, friends, the Bible is full of examples of men with multiple partners or wives, and it's never a good thing even when culturally accepted. Sarah, Abraham's wife, suggested he have an affair, and it brought heartache. No, we are built for one, and adultery is about more than sexual practice that damages our humanity. Adultery is about being committed to one, created for one and one alone. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Adultery is about being committed to one while fooling around with another, the world. Twice, James speaks about being double-minded. You think this and you think that. No wonder life is not working out. You're committed to this, but you're fooling around there. No wonder there's brokenness and heartache. You know, that night in the car wash, I was a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king, but there was a place in my heart that wanted to establish myself as the world's leading Andrew Murray scholar. I mean, it sounds so silly when I say it out loud. I was ready to attack a person to defend that. Instead, I needed to take that desire and nail it to the cross to let it die with the one who paid the price. Friends, all through the Bible, there's a connection between adultery and idolatry, and they're similar in this one way, that with marriage, we're committed to one, and fooling around hurts that. In Christ, we are created and committed to one. All of these others, ways of finding our security, our identity, our hope, our joy, all of these other ways are like being committed to one and fooling around. God gave husbands and wives deep emotional and physical pleasure to bind them together. When we squander that gift in pursuit of my own personal feelings, I've misused it. I can't be bound to one and be playing with others. That would diminish the one important thing by diluting it with others. And that's the substance of idolatry. When I value a secondary thing as if it were the main thing. You adulterous people, James writes, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How much clearer can it be said? You see, the substance of idolatry is taking gifts of God, good things, but secondary things or third-level things or fourth-level things and trying to squeeze them in as one. Is it a bad thing to be an Andrew Murray scholar? No, it's not a bad thing. It's shaped my life in prayer in a way that I trust you benefit from, even if you can't recognize it. It's not a bad thing. But when I made that one thing, the ultimate thing for which I deserve respect and find security, I was ready to hit somebody. I took a a fourth level thing and tried to sneak it on the same shelf as the first level thing. Friends, in the trophy case of our heart, the shelf only has room for one first place trophy. Everything else is second or third or fourth or perhaps shouldn't even be there. We spend our lives trying to collect trophies that we can trust when at the cross Jesus gave us the one that matters. I could lose every other one. And because of what he did and gave to me by his grace, I have what matters. We think we can add lots of our other second place trophies to that first place shelf. Is it a good thing to be able to produce great wealth? Sure. God gives some people an unbelievable ability to generate income so that they can invest it in God's kingdom. Perhaps not even just 10%. Imagine if you could live well on 20%, what God could do through your 80%. But no, oh, I love God and I love all that the world brings. Is it a good thing to have a well-trained and nimble mind? Sure, I'm thankful that God has given me amazing opportunities to serve people well through that. But when I use it to set up in my heart something to prove my significance and what always follows, my superiority, I've taken a second or third level thing and put it on that shelf. So James shows us a problem conflict on the outside, but there's also a cause, battles on the inside. And here's his solution. Submit to God. Listen to this starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. See, this is the language of repentance. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Put away that other thing so that you might focus on the one thing. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. All of this, he's picking up language from the prophets of repentance and return. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Grieve, mourn, and wail. This language of repentance calls us to two quick things. One, don't hide. In Genesis 3, we see the uh, picture of one of the deepest responses of the human heart to our brokenness, and it's this, to hide. Like my fig leaf. You see, I would put on a fig leaf of denial by saying, oh, I was just tired. Well, I was tired. Oh, I was just discouraged. 
One of the hardest things for me to learn to do, and I'm not terribly good at it, but is to apologize with an active voice sentence and no but. I'm sorry, but everything that follows is destructive. Everything. James calls us, don't hide, face it and come to God. Later on, he'll say, confess your sins to one another. We may not want to all be open at the level of the 72. I've given you this picture before, but the level of the 12 people who live life with us and everyone needs a three, a three, a 12, a 72. At the level of the three, who is it that you could confess your sin to or would who point out the pathways of your heart? I'll be forever thankful to Neil who helped me see that part of the tension with my teenagers told me more about me than the tension. And I needed to face that as a dad. So don't hide and in all things pursue Jesus. For it is he, not just the idea of Jesus, not just the doctrine, but God the Son who laid aside his glory that he might take on the brokenness of humanity to show himself and then to give himself and from that place say, it is finished. You don't need to add this or add that or prove yourself with this. It's finished. Receive. And he says, come. Jesus would say, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let the Son, as he gives his life for you, show you the Father, that you might hear the voice of adoption. My beloved daughter, my beloved son, your big brother has called you home. Come to me, the next words, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Don't hide. How easy is it for us to justify, to cover up, to explain, to avoid, and then to carry? Don't hide. Pursue Jesus, who alone can deal with the heart in a way that changes the external. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love that in the midst of our brokenness, the Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, that you came and died. And that exchange became the point at which we could lay aside our brokenness in the hope of your transformation in us. Even now, be at work to transform us by your grace as we meet you and receive from you more than we could ever ask or imagine. Fill us this day with great hope, with a humility that shows the world we live by what we have received, not by what we have produced. Thank you for this table, a regular reminder of your death and resurrection.
We give you thanks and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.